Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. Father, I pray that you speak this morning. Open our, our, our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive your message. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to continue our series this morning on the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. Uh, I've said it the last two weeks. I'm going to say it one last time, and I won't say it again for at least a week. This might be uh, the, mo- the, the most important series that we have ever engaged in as a church family. The reason for that uh, is because in these letters we find Jesus' message to the local church. So the, uh, the, the key, I believe, to whether this impacts our church or has no influence whatsoever uh, is in the last words that Jesus ends each letter with, which is, him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, if you'll listen up, there is a message here for you. The question is, are we willing as a church and as individuals to hold up the book of Revelation as a mirror and ask ourselves some hard questions. So uh, to this point, we have looked at the church in Ephesus. Uh, It's a letter in which Jesus says, hey, I see your good works. I see your good doctrine. This sounds really good, but he says, but you've lost the love you have at first. And he says, get back to that place where you love God with all of your heart or just shut it all down. This is the importance of the great commandment that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is no substitute for loving God with all of your heart, uh, with all of your mind and your strength. That's true for a church. That's true for a believer. Uh, Last week, we moved into the second letter, which is the letter to the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church. Smyrna is one of two churches that receives no correction. They only receive encouragement. Uh, And the message to them was, don't be afraid or stop being afraid. Uh, And it's not because I'm going to rescue you out of that situation. It's actually because Jesus said, I'll be with you in the midst of that situation, and it'll be worth it to go through that situation. So that was Smyrna. Today we're going to move on to the third church, which is the church at Pergamum. Everybody say Pergamum. Okay, three people said it. We're, We're doing okay. Uh, there's a little more uh, confusing language in this letter. We're gonna, that's, that's okay because we're going to kind of break it down line by line. But I have a map of Pergamum. We'll put on the screen here. You can see that uh, the, the letters are just working their way up the coast, sort of one, two, three. Number three is Pergamum uh, there. So uh, a couple more pictures from kind of archaeology that I just wanted to put on the screen. Uh, Pergamum was a very large city. It had a, a lot of temples. And then we have a lot of ruins from the city today. One more there just to, to show you an idea of what it looks like there. But you know, again, there, there's a little more confusing language, but we're going to do line by line. And we'll begin this morning in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. So I've said before that Jesus introduces himself with a title in each letter that is relevant to the church that he's speaking to. Last week, it was the persecuted church in Smyrna. It was a church who was risking their life at a high likelihood of martyrdom for their faith. So Jesus introduces himself to them as the one who died and came to life again. He connected to them by saying, hey, you're, pay- you're facing the possibility of death, but let me just say right off the bat, I have authority over death and life. So the title is always relevant to the message in the letter. Now, if you understand this element of each letter, 
then you see that when Jesus introduces himself as the one with a sharp, double-edged sword, you're probably thinking, oh boy, this might not be good. Uh, at least you're thinking, this is not going to be one of those two churches that has no correction. Uh, and we're going to see later, you'd be right about that. So we're going to set that aside for now. We're going to come back to it because that's actually what the letter does. And we'll move on to Revelation 2, the next verse, verse 12. Uh, and 13, it says, uh, again, to the angel in the church of Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Now, this phrase, where Satan has his throne, it, it's really interesting because uh, in the original language, it literally just translates California. Now, th this phrase uh, is likely used because Pergamum, uh, it, it was a religious center for pagan worship. It was the perfect place for anyone except for Christians. Uh, in Pergamum, there were numerous temples built to, to the gods uh, Dionysus, uh, uh, Athena, Demeter, and Zeus, just to name a few. And Zeus, in fact, had a throne built to him that was eight feet high, They've recovered that throne, and today it's in the Berlin uh, Museum, and this is a, a picture of that th uh, throne to Zeus. Uh, this is from Pergamum. It's been moved here, uh, and inscribed on the throne are the words, Zeus, the Savior. Zeus, the Savior. Uh, and you'll recall from last week that, that Smyrna built this temple for worshiping the Roman emperors as God. Well, Pergamum was actually ahead of them in that department by 50 years. And in fact, they built three different temples, uh, temples to worship three different dead emperors. Pergam Pergamum was also the center of worship for the god Asclepios. Uh, this is the Roman god of healing. And you might recognize the symbol uh, for this god. This is a picture of that god. Uh, and you, you might recognize it because you'll find it uh, on many ambulances. You'll find it uh, in, in hospitals. It's, it's still a, an image that we see today. This came from a god that was worshipped in Pergamum. They even had a medical school inside uh, the temple to Asclepios, to this god. And the sick or the suffering would go into the temple at night. They would sleep on the floor of the temple uh, and they would let loose uh, a bunch of snakes. And the belief was if a snake rubbed up against you in the night, you were considered to have been touched by a god. Um, and I like doing illustrated sermons. So we released about two dozen snakes. In, uh, <laughs> uh, in addition to all of this, uh, and I'm going to choose my words very carefully because this is family worship Sunday. The kids are in here. Uh, it was an extremely immoral and promiscuous culture. And I cannot emphasize that enough. Extremely immoral. Uh, now, now, people that lived there, they considered, you know, this is harmless fun. These superstitions. Jesus says, hey, this is not harmless fun. This is not a superstition. This is evil at its darkest. This is the city where Satan has his throne. But this is the point that I don't want you to miss in all of this. I remember uh, each letter is broken down. There's a title, there's a commendation, there's a correction, and there's a reward. When Jesus talks about the throne, the, the city where Satan has his throne, it's part of the commendation. It's part of the encouragement. Jesus writes about where they're living, and, and he doesn't say, what in the world are you doing in this evil place? Get out of here. No, he commends them for keeping their faith in such an evil place. And uh, look around, church. Uh, 
Sometimes it feels like we live in the place where Satan has his throne, where, as, as Kelly mentioned earlier, more than half a million unborn babies are murdered every year. Uh, you turn on the news and there's shooting here and there's a shooting there. Uh, yet in the nation, if you come out and you oppose evil, they call you evil. But what Jesus would say to you is, I see where you are and I see the evil you're surrounded by. And his word to you would not be, get out of there, at least not yet, that, that day might come. But his word would be, in the midst of the evil, remain true to his name and hold close to his name. Uh, I go back to the end of Jesus' ministry when he's on the brink of his arrest in his crucifixion and he's crying out to the Father. His prayer in John 17, 15 is my prayer is not, Father, that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. His desire was not to remove them from the place of, of evil. Now, I want you to hear this. God's desire for you is not that you would be removed from places where darkness exists. God's desire is that you would be a shining light in the midst of the darkness. You, church, have been intentionally placed. If you go to work or you go to school or you turn on the news and you say, this sure is a dark place, exactly. That's why God put a light there. Do you recognize that, church? It's no accident that we live in the midst of darkness. You're not here by accident. Hallelujah, JR, one again. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. I had to limit him today. I said, you only get to win once this time, JR. Oh, boy. Uh, Jesus said, you are the light of a, the world. If you take a light to, the, to a place that, that's already bright, that's great, but you're not actually having any impact there. But when a light shines in a, in, in a dark place, the impact is undeniable. So we shouldn't be wishing for a brighter location for us to live in. We should be the light in that dark location. Now, the key to all this, I said, is in the midst of darkness, Jesus said, you remain true to the faith. I want to put that verse back on the screen, uh, Revelation 2.13, where Jesus said, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Uh, the, the word there, I just want to show you quickly. If you're taking notes, write this down. Uh, it's the Greek word kroteo, and it means to hold on to and to refuse to let go of or to cling to. So what Jesus says to them is in the midst of this city where Satan has his throne, you hold on to my name and you cling to it. You refuse to let go. We're going to come back to that later. I don't want you to forget. All right. Let's see. So continuing in verse 13, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. He says it again. Now, we don't know much about Antipas from Scripture, but we, we hear about him uh, in the early church writings, uh, the early church fathers. And what, what we learn is that Antipas is believed to be the very first martyr in Asia, the first person in Asia killed for his faith. Uh, and, and how was he killed? Antipas was placed in a large bronze kettle and he was slowly roasted to death. The very first martyr in Asia. Uh, and if you think about it, this was a message to the church in Pergamum that said, if you want to follow Jesus, count the cost. 
If you want to follow Jesus, watch your friend roast slowly to death, count the cost, it just got real. There, there is no questioning what is at stake here, yet Jesus is commending them, and he says, even in the shadow of what just took place to Antipas, the church at Pergamum is holding strong and refusing to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. But just like with Ephesus, uh, it's looking really good so far, and then comes that, that daunting phrase, nevertheless, I hold this against you. Uh, so that's in verse 14, if you'll put it on the screen. Uh, he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you, amen, there are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Now, Balaam is a character from the Old Testament. You know, you'll find a story in Numbers chapter 22 through 25. And if he sounds familiar, uh, you probably recognize his name because he's the one who the donkey talked to him. Uh, he kept beating his donkey, and the donkey eventually turned around and God opened its mouth, and he said, why are you beating me? Uh, so that's this, this same ba Balaam. But Balaam is an extremely interesting figure in Scripture, and I can't really think of anyone else quite like him because he was this prophet of sorts. Uh, he heard very clearly from God, but he had some major, major character flaws. So uh, his story tells of a Moabite king named Balak who wanted to go to war against Israel. But the king knew of Israel's reputation that basically anybody in their path, they just destroyed them. Uh, no one could defeat them in battle. So the king sent a message to Balaam and he said, hey, I want to hire you. I want to pay you a lot of money to curse the Israelites and then we'll go to war with them. Now Balaam was torn because he could not curse Israel if God didn't tell him to. But at the same time, that money sounded really, really good. So, so Balaam said, I'll come, but I can only say what God tells me to say. I can only curse God if he, uh, curse Israel if God tells me to. So three times Balaam waits for God to speak over Israel, uh, hoping that God will curse them. But instead, all three times, God speaks a blessing over Israel. Now, Numbers 24, this kind of just sums up the end of the story there. Uh, in verse 10, it says, Then Balak, that's the king, his anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave at once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. Balaam answered Balak, uh, Did I not tell the messengers you sent me, even if Balak gives me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could, do, could not do anything of my own accord, good or bad, to go beyond the command of the Lord. And I must say only what the Lord says. So within this story, Balaam's actually looking pretty good. Uh, and in fact, after this story, Balaam disappears from, from the story, from the narrative, and the focus turns to the nation of Israel. What begins to happen in the very next chapter is Israel begins to, to gauge in this immorality with the women of Moab, uh, and the women begin to encourage the Israelites when they come to bed with them. They, they say, hey, why don't you bow down to my God as well? And the Bible says that that's exactly what happened. Um, uh, they didn't renounce their God. They just began to bow down to all the others as well. 
Uh, so God becomes angry with the Israelites for their pluralism, for their idolatry. Uh, uh, and again, they didn't denounce him. They just incorporated other gods. But God, so uh, because of this, sends a plague of judgment against the Israelites and 24,000 people die. Now, what does this have to do with Balaam? Uh, he's not even present in the narrative anymore. The last we heard from him, he was blessing the nation of Israel until his name shows up uh, one more time, only one more time, six chapters later. Uh, and it's speaking about the Moabite woman who had uh, seduced the Israelite men and turned them onto their gods. Uh, speaking of those uh, women in Numbers 31.16, it says, These women were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. Well, that, that adds a wrinkle to Balaam's story, doesn't it? Because in the public eye, Balaam comes off as this man of God who says, I can only do what God tells me to do. I can only say what God tells me to say. But behind the scenes and almost completely left out of scripture, Balaam says, I might not, may not be able to curse them, but I can tell you how to get them to curse themselves. It, technically, by the letter, Balaam obeyed God. He just found a way to please the king as well. Uh, Balaam didn't denounce God. He just found a way to have a foot in both camps. And his teachings were actually the same. You don't have to denounce God. Just serve the other gods as well. You can incorporate what is accepted by our culture into your relationship with God. It was this message of compromise. You can have one foot in God's camp, one foot in culture's camp, and you're good. You're all, you're all set. Well, Revelation uh, chapter 2, continuing, it says this in verse 13 again, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Nevertheless, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Two things just to point out. First of all, it points out right here that even among those in the church who are compromising, no one is, is renouncing Jesus. They're just adding to him. But the second thing I want you to see is that phrase we talked about earlier, to remain true. It means to hold on to something, to refuse to let go, to, to cling to it. I want everybody in the church to take their hand and, and, and like you're clenching something, just clench your fist. Uh, and now hold it up and show it to me. And now say, fight the power. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> no, no, hold on to your, to your fist like that. Because I want you to see something. The next word here he's going to highlight for you is the exact same word that they talk about with Jesus. It's to hold on to something and refuse to let go, to cling to it. So now tighten your other fist. And, and this is who he is. In verse 12 of Hebrews 4, it says, For the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing and spirit, uh, soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Uh, when the Bible talks about this double-edged sword, it's talking about it in the context of judgment. And what we have in Revelation 2 is uh, an element of judgment actually coming against a portion of the church uh, in, in Pergamum. Uh, th this portion who had given themselves to compromises, just like the story of Balaam, where 24,000 people were removed from the nation of Israel because they were taking the entire nation down. And God looked at them and said, uh, if you don't do something here, 
then we're just going to remove them out of the nation and we're going to start from scratch. He's saying the same thing to Pergamum here. He's saying, you've got those in your church who hold to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Uh, and, and, well, let's read it here together. Um, or we just did read it, didn't we? Um, he said that, that I'll come to you and I'll fight against them, those who hold to that belief with the sword of my mouth. Uh, so on to the last verse, uh, verse 17, he says, Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will, give also, uh, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Renee, you can come if you would. Uh, I have talked to a number of people this week uh, who are far smarter than I am, and I've done uh, a lot of research on this hidden manna idea. You can keep that passage on the screen if you would, um, Greg. Uh, and my conclusion uh, is it's just a mystery. Uh, it's a mystery that we'll discover uh, in, in heaven. Now, if I had to make my, my best guess, Jesus said in John chapter 6 that he was the true manna that came down from heaven. So the idea of, of this hidden manna uh, might be a reference to this fulfillment that we would only find in the presence of Jesus Christ, uh, that he is the hidden fulfillment to every need we have. But the white stone that he says he promises to anyone who overcomes, we know a little bit more about that uh, because culturally in that day, uh, the white stone held significance uh, in several different ways. Uh, and I don't think it's just one of these ways. I think it's probably a combination of many that Jesus is referring to here. Now, I'm going to get into some of them in just a moment, but uh, it, it's so fascinating to me what the white stone represented, that maybe this is just the way I'm wired. I told Emily, I have to find some kind of reference showing that this is true because it looks like something that somebody would have made up because it sounds so cool. But I found some references, and if that's you, uh, you can let me know, and I'll, I'll, I'll uh, turn you on to those references. But this white stone, in some cases, um, it, it represented a reprieve from a fight. So if there were gladiators that were going uh, on to, to basically their death, uh, there were times that they would draw stones from a bag. And if they drew a black stone, they had to go into the battle. And if they drew a white stone, they were relieved from battle. They were relieved from the fight. There were other times where the white stone uh, had a marking on it or a name. Uh, and that white stone essentially allowed you entry into another land. So if you were going to a closed nation and you had the right name on that stone, they would allow you entry. And, and it's so cool that Jesus is promising this white stone that allows entrance into another land. Uh, another uh, way it was used was a token of victory in the Olympics. But my favorite way that I found that it's used, uh, and this is referenced in a, a uh, Mesopotamian uh, or, or in an ancient poem called Metamorphosis that dates back to, the, uh, to 8 AD. So this is during the life of Christ. And it's actually a poem, but it talks about in this poem how the white stone was used. Uh, and it says that uh, if someone went to trial and they, they came before a panel of judges, the judges uh, would determine whether they thought someone was innocent or guilty based on the color of the stone. So there would be this urn, and they would put either a black stone or a white stone, and then they would count the stones. And if they counted more white stones, they would present the white stone and say, you've been found innocent. And of course, if they found the black stone, they would say, you've been found guilty. 
But Jesus says, to those who overcome, you'll be given this white stone. And I just think about uh, our justification in Christ. This idea that when we stand before God, not because of our own righteousness, but simply because we have held strong and firm to the name of Jesus Christ, he hands us this stone that says, you have been found innocent because it's been paid for on the cross. Please stand with me, church. Father, I thank you this morning that for those of us who have placed our faith in you in this place, Lord, you have a white stone waiting. And I pray that even in these days of evil where you said many would fall away, I pray for each person in this body that we would remain strong and hold on to your name, that we would persevere for your name, Lord Jesus. I pray for any person in here, Lord, that, that maybe they're, they're uh, under a conviction this morning from your spirit that uh, perhaps we have one foot in your camp and one foot in the camp of the world, uh, that this would be a morning, Lord, where we take the plunge and we say, I am all in with you, that we would let go of some of the things we've been holding on to and say, God, it's all you from here on out. as Renee leads us, I just want to challenge you to invite the Spirit to speak to your heart. We said this morning, and we've said all along, part of this series is saying, will I hold up the book of Revelation as a mirror? Will I hold up this book and look at myself and say, are any of these churches speaking to me? Are you willing to do that with this question of, do I have one foot in each camp? Will I allow the Spirit of God to search me this morning and ask, am I all in with Jesus Christ? So Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to our heart and reveal things to us this morning. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, May God bless you.